today we're going to do one of my most favorite things in the sermon, which is we're going to um, we're going to cover the whole Bible in ten minutes. Um, I'm not kidding. <laughs> uh, we're not going to read every single verse. Um, that would be an incredible. That would be like micro machines guy would have to. I don't think he could read the whole Bible in ten minutes. But uh, we're going we're gonna to cover the whole story of the Bible in 10 minutes. And today's sermon was just a one-off in between a couple of different series. We're going to talk about finding our place in God's story. So we're going to look at God's whole story. And before we get started with that, let's go ahead and pray if you'll join me in prayer. Holy Spirit, thank you for being here. God, we just welcome you into our lives. Lord, we just welcome you to, we invite you to like, meddle in our lives this morning. Lord, would you reveal yourself to us, and would you straighten out any thinking that we have about you or about ourselves or the world that's wrong? God, would you just reveal yourself to us in a new way? Teach us about yourself and who you are, and share with us the promises that you have and the guidance that you have, the wisdom that you want to impart to us, Just the things that you would speak over us, God, we want to hear. Would you give us ears to hear you this morning? We ask for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're just going to get started in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. So you might be familiar with the very beginning of the Bible. God creates all of creation, light and dark and the earth and the animals. And then in verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So things go okay for just a little while. And then in uh, chapter 3, we come across a problem. Maybe you remember the serpent tempts. Eve and Adam with eating from the fruit from the forbidden tree. And um, in verse 315, in fact, I'm actually going to go ahead and start back in verse 8 just for context. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And this is really important for us to understand. When we consider the world that we live in and the evil that's in our world, um, so often I think we can get a little confused about why bad things happen. Um, I remember a long time ago a friend of mine um, got sick with cancer, and another friend said, you know, why didn't, what, what is God doing here? Like, why didn't he stop this? And I said, well, God's not the only one involved, you know, like in our dark and broken world. It's not, everything isn't going the way that God wants things to go. 
Later, in Genesis 12, God reveals himself in a new way <clears throat> to a man named Abram. He later changes his name to Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So here we see God chooses a family. He chooses a man, and he blesses him with descendants. Um, and they have a miraculous encounter, several miraculous encounters with God as um, Abram and his wife have a baby and, um, and as their descendants increase in number. And we see uh, uh, the story begins to unfold of God revealing himself to one chosen people, and then through them he brings blessings to um, others on the earth. Then if we fast forward really fast, let's zoom to 2 Samuel um, God is talking to King David at this point. And I'm going to actually go ahead and start in verse 12 for context, although verse 16, important one, is up here. God is talking to David, and he says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son when he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, with flogging inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So here we see God making another promise. He's making an eternal, unconditional covenant with David. And something that God does when he makes these promises, he always promises on, on himself. You know, he says, I will that this will be. I will bless you. And God talks about what he will do. Um, we know that humans after David will continue to sin and, and God won't leave that, un, he won't leave justice undone. But nothing can separate us. No amount of sin or darkness can separate us from God. And when God promises to establish David's throne forever, we're getting like a sneak peek into the future about Jesus. Because Jesus is born from David's line, and it's Jesus' throne that will rule over all of us for all time. And so it's an unconditional covenant, and it's an eternal one. God actually says the word forever three times over the course of these verses. And God says that when, not if, you know, but when humans mess up, we'll still be close, and uh, we'll still have this access to our gracious king. So you know what's coming next, right? We have a lot of prophets who point forward to Jesus. And then in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is on the scene. He's just been tempted in the desert for 40 days, and he's returned to Nazareth. And it says, when Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, he stood up to read. Um, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began, he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
This is one of Jesus' scandalous moments because when he says this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he's making a claim that no one had ever made before in the synagogue, certainly not in the, in the experience of the people around him. They're shocked that Jesus would say, I've come to fulfill the promise of Isaiah. Jesus comes as payment for these promises that we've gotten from the Father over and over and over throughout the New Testament or throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is saying today is the day that we're going to begin to get the kind of world that God designed way back in the first place in Genesis. And so then finally we'll wrap up with a passage from Revelation. This is verse 21. It's right at the very end of the Bible. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God's story is a story of promise. Unconditional, unrelenting, undefeatable promise. He loves us. He loves us, and we all, he always will. And when we, when we zoom way back and we take kind of this like 50,000 you know, feet in the air view of the Bible, and we fly over the whole thing just in like a couple of minutes, we can really see how God created a good world and how God is trying to get us all back to a good world. He created us. Satan got involved. Um, we humans sinned. We broke relationship with God, um, putting all of creation on this path toward destruction. We're hiding and ashamed. Our community with God is over. Our community with one another has been reduced to blame and pain, and we're left fulfilling uh, we've left the fulfilling purpose given to us by our Creator for an empty lie from our enemy. We were deceived, and we chose wrong. And God didn't pretend that it didn't happen. You know, he won't magic away our choices and the natural consequence of those choices. God respects our right to choose even when we choose wrong, because he doesn't give up, but he doesn't give up on us. Even when we reject him and lose that perfect communion of walking with the Father in the cool of the day, he begins to enact this plan to get it all back. Um, so why not simply restore Eden? You know, I think sometimes um, others, and I've got a, a friend in particular who's an atheist who's very vocal about it and posts on Facebook all the time, you know, like saying, like, couldn't a powerful God, all-powerful and all-knowing, and he can do anything he wants, and he's so good, why didn't he just, just do Eden, just, like, redo Eden, set it, just set it back to rights, like, immediately. And I think it can be really difficult to understand this way in which God handicaps himself, seemingly, to, um, because he's making such a big deal out of our free will. A perfect revelation of himself is something that God apparently um, is unwilling to give us in the wake of Adam and Eve. And that fact has a lot of theologians and scholars and philosophers, um, they uh, attribute God's value, they attribute that to, to God's value of our free will. God gives us the right to choose, even when we choose wrong. There we go. So discussion of this idea um, was really heating up, like in the 1700s. And I know we're all obsessed with the 1700s, right? You know, you know everybody that was talking back then, right? Because I don't. Um, but I know a couple of them because of this very important topic, which is 
um, that's this question of like God's goodness and how do we reconcile that with the bad world that we live in? And maybe even with like the bad selves that we live with, like our, ourselves, you know? Um, so there's a guy, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. Um, he's German. And I was going to not say it that way because I, so, so, I can't help myself because I say it that way in my head every time. Oh, Germans. And, um, and so he was a philosopher. He was also a mathematician. He invented calculus, so I don't know if that makes you like him or like really not like him. But um, he, was like a, he was like a smarty pants guy, okay? Like he had lots to contribute to the world. And he published a collection of essays called Theodicy. He coined this term from the Greek words for God and righteous. Um, and a theodicy is an attempt to like justify or understand like how do we address this problem of a good God but evil exists. So you kind of have these three tenets. God is all good and all powerful and all knowing. Um, the universe creation was made by God and um, exists in relationship with God. And then evil exists in the world. Why, why would that be? And so the free will argument is one that God didn't create, uh, commit evil, but he allows us and Satan to choose to do so because he doesn't want a bunch of robots. Love requires um, a voluntary entering in. You know, if I... If I don't want to love you, you can't make me love you. <laughs> if, I, if you don't love me, I can't, I can't make you love me. If I could, if my husband, for example, fell out of love with me, that would be tragic. And I had like a potion, you know, or some magic wand or something that I could give him that would make him love me again. Like we've all seen those movies, right? Or those stories. We've heard those fairy tales. Like it never works. Love potion never, number nine, like total fail, like not what you want, right? Like this just isn't a thing. Like even the genie in Aladdin says, like, I can't make people fall in love because if I'm making you do it, then it's not love. And so God protects our ability to choose him. Another line of thinking in the theodicy, another argument that's made is that God, if God reveals himself fully to us, that because of the sin in our lives, um, because of just like the darkness that's in us and around us, and this non-holy, this non-set-apart world that we live in, that we won't survive the encounter. Um, this one resonates with my personal experience, to be totally honest. Like, I feel like throughout the course of my, like, following Jesus, being in church and going to conferences and coming up for lots of altar calls. You know, I grew up Pentecostal, so it was always an altar call, and you could kneel, which, like, really, like, that matched my personality when I was, like, a very intense, you know, 14-year-old. And, um, and then even now in the vineyard, you know, we come up for prayer, and it's like, come experience God. And I have had these times where I feel like God's presence is close, and I become aware of my sinfulness. I become aware of all the ways that I fall short. The times that I have just prayed to God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, when maybe I didn't actually feel sorry at all before, but something about being in God's presence, I'm just aware of, like, the wrongness of the bad choices I make, like my selfishness or um, times when I don't prioritize the Lord in my life. Like I just, I become aware of those. And I experience a feeling I've been taught is called conviction. And it's different from shame because it's like weirdly healing, you know? Like it's like awful and wonderful and I cry and I feel refreshed and restored. Like I don't know how God does. I don't know how any of that works. But it's a really, it's a, it's like, it's a good thing. But like, maybe kind of intense, and I couldn't live there all the time. Like if I woke up every single morning in God's presence feeling deep conviction and refreshment and forgiveness, like, and that's how I walked around every minute of every day, like I couldn't keep my job, I wouldn't have any friends, 
<laughs> I couldn't preach. I don't think I could be a good mom. Like, I was like oh, that's a lot, you know? So God reveals himself, like, in these pieces, you know? I think we really see this in the story of Moses. Do you remember, you know, Moses leads the Israelites out of slavery and parts the Red Sea, very cool, and they walk through, and they wander around in the desert for a while because they keep messing up, which I feel seen, you know? And uh, like, come on, guys, like, you got one job here. Oh, let's make a calf out of gold. Like, what? Um, anyway, Moses goes over the mountain. He gives the Ten Commandments, and he does all this stuff. He spends lots of time in God's presence. And this really weird science fiction thing happens to Moses, that his face starts to glow sometimes after he's in the presence of the Lord. Now, what do you think would be your reaction? If somebody came up to me with a glowing face because they had been in the presence of God, I think I would think it was cool. Like, I want to think about myself that I would be like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> like, is that makeup? Is that bioluminescence? Like, what is happening right now? Also, if I lived in this time, I think I might be like, hey, Moses, it's like really dark in my tent, and I dropped my scarf. So could you, <laughs> you know, use your phone to like, just like a phone face. Like, I need... Like, I feel like that would be really helpful in a world before electricity. But they don't do any of those things. They don't do any of those things. Instead, like, like Israelite CDC tells him he's got to put on a mask. Like, he has to put on a veil because it's freaking everybody out. Like, everybody's, they're scared and they're nervous. Like, part of God's goodness is that he's different from us, you know? Like, he's never done anything wrong ever. And he has no limits. You know, like he is eternal and he is all powerful and he is all good. And like that's not like a casual thing that like you just run up and high five God. Like it's a little bit intense, you know. So, so that's one kind of thing that's the thought about like God's revelation to us coming in these little bits and pieces. And so we see this in the Bible, right? We see God coming with a promise and revealing himself to Abraham and to Moses, and to King David, and to the prophets, and then Jesus shows up, and he picks just a couple of guys, and he doesn't, like, build a real big, like, fast food hospital where you can just drive through and get healing to, like, efficiently heal as many people as possible. Instead, Jesus builds these relationships, and he seems to follow a very specifically prescribed course from the Father on who to heal and whom to raise from the dead, and what to say, and what to teach, and he changes the course of human history. This revelation of God's goodness shapes all of our lives. Back to the 1700s, Leibniz publishes this essay, and one of the things he says, kind of the famous Leibniz quote, is, we live in the best of all possible worlds. God is good, he can do anything he wants. Yes, this is an evil world, but our free will is saved, or is protected, and um, we're, and God's not just, like, killing us by giving us, like, total revelation and we just can't handle it because we're so weak. And so this must be the best of all possible worlds. God's, you know, kind of done, like, the, uh, is it a spoiler if I say he's done the Doctor Strange thing in Endgame, you know, where he investigates, like, 17,000 possible futures? Um, God knows everything that's going to happen, and this is the one he picks Leibniz says. So that's, that's, this is what we've got. So... Forty years later, 1759, a French guy comes along, Voltaire, and he writes a short story called Candide. And uh, it's funny, 
uh, and absurd and silly, and it actually even gets a little bit vulgar at some points. Um, I can't imagine he ever thought we'd be talking about it in church. Um, but here we are. Um, and so Voltaire writes a story, and he makes fun of this idea of the best of all possible worlds. And he just, he's got some unfortunate uh, protagonists, and he just puts them through, like, one awful thing after the next after the next. But he talks about it all, like, in a really cheery tone and says, you know, a person, like, for instance, gets captured by pirates, and they have to be the slave, and they say, oh, well, it's the best of all possible worlds, so I guess that's fine. And, and they meet cannibals, and like somebody gets like some of their some of their body hacked off and eaten, and they say, "Oh well, best of all possible worlds, ha ha ha." And then later that person can't like ride a horse because part of their part of their bum is removed. I told you, vulgar. And then the person says, "Oh well, best of all possible worlds, ha 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 ha." And Voltaire says, "Like this is nonsense, essentially, right?" He finds like a funny comedian way to say, "Absolutely, this is no possible way that this is the best of all possible worlds," and that's his his critique of the whole thing. And he's being a provocateur. And French, you know, and 1759, like he's being himself. And I don't, I'm, I'm not mad at Voltaire. Um, but I do think that there's one critical point that he really does get right. And that is, is that we can't just blindly accept that everything that happens to us is God's will. We can't, and we're not going to fix all of this just with a big smile and saying, well, best of all possible worlds, so I guess I'm fine. Like, joking the bad things away or using like a superpower of optimism isn't actually the thing that solves the world's problems. We've got to wrestle with this stuff. When difficult things happen, and they will, um, we have to engage with the reality of our lives. A Hobby Lobby poster telling us to live, laugh, love just isn't going to cut it, you know? What Voltaire misses, I think, by a mile is that we've got to wrestle with God so, friends, please don't try to understand your life outside of the context of what God is doing because when we come to God with our pain and with our hurt, when we've been hurt by others or when we have hurt others, when we come to God with huge injustices and, and deep concerns, um, you know, war in Ukraine and pandemic that takes the lives of hundreds of thousands, millions, when we bring all of this to God, we find out two really important things. And one is that God wants a good world for us. We see it in Genesis, and we see it in Revelation, that God's design is a world with no pain and no shame and no tears and no broken relationships. God's design for us is a world of perfect community and unity with him and with each other. And I think sometimes we can get to this feeling like maybe God is the one standing in the way, like, I want something, and God tells me that I can't have it. And I, I get a little confused about who's the enemy here, like what's wrong with this picture. But the reality is, is that God wants a good world for us. He wants a good, unbroken life for us. And because we live in a broken world, getting from here to there, sometimes it, it's going to cost us. Obedience to the Lord costs. Ultimately, is for our good, but might not feel good in the moment, you know, because we might have to embrace a limit in the moment. We might have to follow a rule that we don't like um, in the moment. The other thing that I think is really helpful about wrestling with all of my pain as I look at this, um, as I look at the big story of the Bible, is I see this cycle of humans falling away and God like drawing them close with a promise again and again and again. 
I almost like, I picture in my mind like a string of Christmas lights, you know, and it's like we have a little revelation from God, and then the string continues, and then a little revelation from God, and the string continues, and a little revelation of God. And it's really easy for me in an objective, non-emotional way to look at that string of lights through like the history of the people of Israel and say, oh, look, there's God, and there's God, and there's God, and there's God. And people act like silly goofballs in the meantime, and they do, I mean, I say silly goofballs, like the Bible sometimes is a dark place, especially the Old Testament, right? Like rape and incest and murder and wars and some really dark things happen in the Bible, but God just consistently reveals himself again and again, and the more that people respond to that, the better the world gets. And I can, I can see that pattern, and it's, that, that's like easy for me to understand. When I look at my own life, especially my own weaknesses, my own failings, I don't, I, it doesn't seem quite so organized. It doesn't seem quite so sorted out. Instead, I just feel like I see like a big, messy pile of all of the bad things I've ever done. You know, like here's just like, I just keep messing it up again and again. And I interpret like as God reveals himself to me over and over, just like is what's happening in the Bible, it's harder for me to see this as like this consistent organized thing of God being consistent through my inconsistency. Instead, I interpret it as, I can't believe I messed up again. I can't believe I did this again. I can't believe I'm still here, and I'm still not learning, and I'm never going to learn, and I'm never going to improve, and I can really get down on myself, you know? And there was one time recently I was praying, and I said to God, I just feel like I'm going to have to be apologizing to the people that I love for the rest of my life, like my whole life is just one huge apology, like I'm sorry for messing this up again, and I really thought the last time that it happened that I was going to like never do it again, because I really knew it was wrong then, and I really, really want to get better, and yet here I am in what seems like exactly the same place. But when I go to the Bible, and God stretches out this Christmas light string for the people of Israel, then he can kind of stretch out my string too and say, Carol, we're just on a journey. Of course you're going to be apologizing to the people you love for the rest of your life. You're also going to be getting forgiven by the people that you love for the rest of your life. You're also going to be forgiving the people that you love over and over and over, revealing my great love for them for the rest of your life. You're going to be giving for the rest of your life and you're going to be receiving for the rest of your life. And this is what the Christian life is. We don't get saved and then get perfect. It's not like that. And I need you not to expect it to be like that. And heavens, you gotta not teach it's going to be like that. <laughs> like, I'll get fired <laughs> from my job. But I just feel like God is saying, like, this consistency, the consistency in our relationship with the Lord comes from the Lord and the response to him that he empowers us to make. He's running the show. Starting again and again counts. That's what counts. That's the thing God cares about. And so whether you find yourself in a place, you know, maybe in that first part of saying, I'm getting hurt a lot, and I need to be reminded that God wants a good world for me. Or if you find yourself in a different place of saying, man, I'm, I'm hurting others a lot, and I need to remember that starting again and again is something that is okay. Like, God wants that for me. That is the right thing to do. I think either way, taking our struggles to the Bible, even like big picture Bible where we just read a few verses, I think can really help, like really, I think that's God taking that opportunity just to steer us right back on course. 
So maybe some of this resonates with you this morning. Um, maybe you've, uh, you find yourself in one of those places experiencing hurt from people that you love or that you're close to, people who were supposed to protect you and they chose not to, or experiencing hurt just from like looking around the world around us, you know, and seeing injustice, seeing big problems, maybe in your workplace or like in international politics or like in concern for, you know, are my children going to know what snow is because the climate is changing so fast or whatever. Like wherever those hurts come from, I think that God really has some comfort to give us, some reassurances. Um, one of Jesus' name is Emmanuel, God with us. He is in this with us, you know. Or if maybe like me, you find yourself in like a different place of just being aware of your own failings and your own faults and wishing that you could do better, that you'd be better, that God would just snap his fingers and like make you perfect. Um, I think God has something really wonderful to give us and to talk about, talk to us about this morning. So this morning, um, this was all the preamble, the main the main part of the service is going to come next. We're actually, we've switched to having two ministry songs at the end, so you've got lots more time to worship. If you want to receive prayer, if anything that I said this morning really feels like, oh, yeah, that's so true. Like, I just want you to know that's not me. Um, that's the Lord. I can't read your minds, and I don't know where you're at this morning, but I think, like, God, God maybe is talking to some of us this morning. And if you feel like that's true, I'd really love to invite you to come up and to receive prayer. Um, you just stand in the front, somebody come put their hand on your shoulder, they'll ask you your name, um, and you can tell them as much or as little as you want. And, uh, and the best part is then they do all the work. You just stand there and, uh, you know, maybe hold your hands out if you want to. If you're like me, you cry and cry, and that's fine. If you don't cry, it's also fine. Um, and, uh, and let the community just lift you up to the Lord. So um, would you stand? The band is going to come and play those two songs.